Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored by Street Toyota. As one of Amarillo's most highly respected dealerships, Street Toyota isn't just about selling cars, but about serving Amarillo's transportation needs. They approach every day and every customer with a servant's heart. Stop in for a visit or view current inventory at streettoyota.com. Also, Hey Amarillo is made possible every week because of community support. If you want to help support the production of this show or become a sponsor, check out patreon.com slash heyamarillo. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon. Today's guest is Dr. Guy Lonerigan. Guy is a former faculty member at West Texas A&M University, and he lived in Canyon for several years. Today, he's a veterinary epidemiologist and a professor in Texas Tech's Department of Animal and Food Sciences. But he remains tied to this area because he has family here, and because he's one of the champions working to bring the Texas Tech School of Veterinary Medicine to Amarillo. The school wouldn't just meet a significant need for vets throughout Texas, but would have an extremely positive economic impact on the city for years to come. So we talk about the veterinary needs of the area, and why Amarillo is the perfect fit for this school. And since Guy is originally from Australia, he offers a fascinating insight on the culture itself and what he loves about Amarillo. Here's Dr. Guy Lonerigan. Guy Lonerigan, welcome to the Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So I I definitely want to talk about um, the vet school. I want to talk about your specialties and the things that you're involved with. But before we get to that point, I, I want to discuss how you ended up here in West Texas, because uh, a quick listen to your accent lets me know that it's it's a little bit different from the typical West Texas twang. So so tell me what brought you here. Yeah, absolutely. Really, when it comes down to it, it was a series of unforeseen events that led me to West West Texas. But I haven't left. So I I grew up in a rural town in Australia, and we had a family ranch, and I spent a lot of time working out there with my father, and he was a veterinarian. And it was the early days of embryo transfer in livestock, and I got to help him with a lot of the surgeries. And from there, I ended up going to vet school. And afterwards, I wanted to specialize in livestock medicine and surgery, and I came over to the US in 1995. uh, And I came over really for one year, and I was determined to go back after one year. But after a year at Colorado State, I realized I could do with a little bit more education. So I did graduate training, uh, masters, then a PhD at Colorado State. I enjoyed my time, and then I looked at a job at the University of Sydney in Australia, and then one at West Texas A&M. And in 2001, right at the end, I moved down to Canyon, and I haven't left West Texas since. What part of Australia did you grow up in? I grew up in the southeast part okay. of Australia, northwest of Sydney. It's about 150 miles northwest. Uh, it's rolling hills, sheep, wheat, cattle, wine, countries, beautiful okay. part of the world. In, in terms of ranching country or agricultural country, is there a big difference in terms of the climate or the, the geography compared to this area? Uh, yes. Yeah. Where I grew up, it was uh, rolling hills. Okay. So that's an obvious difference. Uh, different amount of rainfall, different climate, uh, but there are lots of similarities. Uh, rural people all over the world share a lot in common, and mm. that's what really has kept me here is that I love the connection to rural West Texas. Was there a reason that you decided to pursue your education here rather than staying in Australia? 
Well, that was the series of unforeseen events. I came here and had, did not expect to make the contacts I did. And okay. uh, the two people at Colorado State who suggested I do a master's were just wonderful advisors. And so I ended up doing a master's and then continued on to a PhD. And that was really the reason I stayed. And, and quite often, a lot of the things and why we do things are based on relationships and the people we meet. And, and it was those people that really convinced me to stay. So it was less about maybe the uh, educational aspect or the expertise that you might have learned is more about the relationships that you built? I think it was all of the above. Okay. I, I it, To summarize, veterinary medicine is a lot about treatment of animals. And you think about taking a pet, right? You're taking an individual to the vet. But I was much more interested in populations of animals. You think livestock, herds, or uh, groups of animals at a feedlot or a dairy. And that required a little bit of a different skill set. And I started to realize I didn't have that skill set uh, during my year at Colorado State. So that led me into more population medicine epidemiology at Colorado State. And that's what I've been doing since. Okay, so tell me, tell me what that means, like from a, a lay perspective. What does is, what is your specialty entail? Well, to go back to the traditional model, take the dog to the pet, you really want to know why is that animal sick today? Mm -hmm. What can I do to make it better or whatever that may be? Whereas in uh, epidemiology, you wonder why this disease occurs more commonly in this group of animals than that group of animals. And what can I do to the population to help reduce the burden of that disease? You, you came to WT Canyon. How long were you actually living there? Uh, I was in Canyon uh, working at WT for almost eight and a half years. And okay. then in July 2010, I moved down to Lubbock and started working at Texas Tech University. I'd, I'd like to, you know, before we get too far into the veterinary part, just talk a little bit about this region compared to Australia, you know, with, with a similar focus on agriculture, on ranching or, or farming. Can you compare and contrast the people who live here? versus the people that you knew back home? I mean, is, is there any big difference in outlook or perspective? Yes and no. So Australia is a big country. Mm -hmm. It's almost the size of continental USA. And we have very diverse climates all over Australia, from the outback, where you have cattle stations with two or three million acres. And then you have small land holdings in the southeast of the country, where you have uh, fairly intense grass-fed dairy operations. So there's very different, but there are spots that are very similar. And you know, Texas is a um, not just a state to live in, but it's a frame of mind to live in, mm -hmm. I think. And the closest state we would have to that in Australia is Queensland. Okay. And there's a lot of places in Queensland that share a lot of similarities to Texas. Uh, there's actually a town in central, south central Queensland called Texas. So this mm -hmm. is uh, that would, would be what I would say would be the similarities. But in terms of uh, is Australia more like any country in the world? Uh, it's probably more like the US than any country in the world in terms of free markets and uh, agriculture and the blend of the two and the degree of independence. I have the sense that Americans, just from an educational perspective, uh, think of Australians based on the media. So we think of all Australians being like Crocodile Dundee. Do Australians think of Texans as being, you know, all John Wayne types of people, or are those types of, uh, I guess, preconceived ideas prevalent, or is that yeah, I think, beginning to, you know, sort of pass away? Yeah, I think preconceived ideas are shared all over the world. Um, so uh, uh, Australians, particularly those who haven't had the 
opportunity and pleasure of traveling through the US, we will have preconceived ideas of what a Texan is like, what a New Yorker is like, uh, what a Californian's like. Mm. So yeah, those the, the habits to preconceive um, are shared worldwide. So let's talk about the connection that you have with with Amarillo right now. Beyond having lived in Canyon, you know, for several years, and beyond still living in West Texas, you are pretty involved in the planning for the proposed veterinary school here in Amarillo. So I'd like you to, for for people that don't know about that, for listeners that maybe haven't followed the news or uh, the progress, to tell me what that idea is. So the idea is to implement uh, a transformative, comprehensive vet school in Amarillo. And this idea is not necessarily new. In the 60s, when the School of Medicine was being discussed to establish at Texas Tech University that ultimately led to the Health Science Center campus up here. Right. Uh, there was a discussion of the vet school at the same time. And in 1971, the Higher Education Coordinating Board, the state authority that grants the ability to do one of these degrees, actually allowed Texas Tech to implement a vet degree at Texas Tech. But it was never funded, so it never went anywhere. And the discussion again occurred in the 90s and then in the early 2000s. But we're here now because Texas has outgrown the capacity of any one institution. We're approaching 30 million people. A lot of those have pets. Livestock industry is concentrated. In the last two decades, West Texas, East New Mexico has become the third or fourth biggest milkshed in the, in the U.S. Texas has grown as an economy, as, an, as a state, in many different respects. And so what we've seen just in the last generation, in the last two to three decades, Texas has gone from a state that trained its own veterinary workforce for its own particular needs into a state where we're now overwhelmingly dependent on other states and other countries for our veterinary workforce. Mm. Right now, three out of four new licenses go to students who have been trained outside of Texas. Uh, and many times they're trained at private schools outside of the US. In that light too, we've outgrown the educational capacity that any one institution can offer. Uh, we now have more Texans enrolling in out-of-state programs than we do within the state because we've just grown as a state. So when we started this process, it was really, well, what can we do to complement the existing program, which is one of the world's best, one of the most affordable in the country? What can we do to complement that program but meet specific needs? And our focus and our specific needs are how we produce vets that are going to work in rural and agricultural and small communities across Texas. And I include Amarillo and Lubbock and Midland and Abilene, those types of communities. But I would also say that this is not just a West Texas issue. When we started this process three to four years ago, we heard from vets across Texas who said, Guy, you have to understand this is not a West Texas problem. This is a Texas problem. For instance, we heard from a vet in Sulphur Springs who could not hire a small animal practitioner. We just recently heard from a vet uh, an hour east of Dallas who has had a vacancy for two and a half years and has not had one interviewee come out of College Station. Wow. And we've heard from uh, vets and practices in Central Texas, in South Texas, 
that we need to produce large animal vets, small animal vets, all the types of vets, but those have to be willing to go and work and, and put down roots in agricultural communities across Texas. So that requires a transformative model of education, and that's what we're working towards. It doesn't duplicate existing efforts. It doesn't compete with the existing efforts. Um, and really, it complements what the state is already doing. Where are the, the prominent veterinary schools right now? I mean, those that are leaving the state, where, where are they going? Well, uh, the biggest beneficiary of those leaving the state has, is now the private schools. Okay. Um, and in the last 10 to 15 years, there have been a wave of private schools that have popped up in the US as well as in the Caribbean. So on Ross School of Medicine in the Caribbean, St. Hmm. George School of Medicine in the Caribbean, uh, there's private school in California, Arizona, and Tennessee. The challenge is that while we have an extraordinarily high-class, world-class, affordable program at Texas A&M, not enough people have access to it. And when they have to go out of state, the average yearly tuition and fees for a student to go out of state right now is $51,000 per year. Wow. So... For lack of access to the in-state program, we have too many Texans who lack access to affordable education. And when they go out of state and go to one of these schools or even a public school that charges out-of-state tuition, uh, they take on tremendous amount of debt. So in some sense, we're exporting economic impact. So these students go out of state, they go to other schools, they uh, spend their living money, they spend their mm -hmm. tuition and fees, that's economic impact elsewhere. That allows those schools to get bigger and recruit the best and brightest. So we're not now re recruiting the best and brightest researchers and education professors. But if they do come back to Texas after graduating, they're coming back with debt. So in a sense, when we send Texans out of state for their education, we're exporting economic impact and re-importing debt. Wow. And that really is a structural problem that we've come to because of the growth and success of Texas. So I, I think when we look at Texas and the veterinary workforce needs and the veterinary educational needs, Texas has a problem. It's a problem of our own success. We just lack the capacity right at the moment to produce sufficient workforce and offer sufficient educational opportunities for Texans. So you, you talked about the needs that, that veterinary practitioners have had in the Dallas area or in South Texas. Why is Amarillo being so isolated, you know, from the rest of Texas? Why is Amarillo the ideal place for tech to, to create this school? I think for a number of really good reasons. Amarillo is the center of livestock value in Texas. Most of the livestock value, if we look at livestock sales or sales of their products, meat, milk and beef, is generated around Amarillo. So when we think about agricultural veterinarians, that will be large animal vets and small animal vets, but occasionally a small animal vet may need to see a cow or whatever that may be. So it just makes sense from that aspect. The other one is Amarillo is a vibrant community. If you think about the metropolitan service area of Amarillo now, it's around a quarter of a million people. That is a large community and one of the largest communities in the US without a professional program like this. One of the more salient reasons is that Amarillo is a community like no other. It gets behind big, bold ideas. 
and to build a comprehensive standalone vet school requires a community that is willing to get behind an idea like this. And so we've seen the community through the city and the Amarillo Economic Development Corporation, but also now countless donors step up to guarantee the cost of construction of this building. So that's a $90 million commitment that's not exclusively from Amarillo, but largely from Amarillo, because people see the benefit, and they see the benefit not just to building a new program, but they see the benefit and what it can do for Amarillo. Yeah, let's talk about that benefit. So, you know, thinking several years in the future, you know, this, this $90 million project uh, is completed. Imagining that, that everything happens the way that it's being discussed and planned, what would that impact be? How many students would we see? What kind of change would, would that create? So the, the school will be located on the existing Texas Tech Health Science Center campus on uh, North Coulter, that uh, hospital area. Mm -hmm. And we will add, we're uh, planning for 60 students per class, a four-year class, so that's 240 students. Uh, we're also planning for graduate students, so a robust research program. So that will be somewhere in the neighbourhood of 350 to 400 students once it's fully up and running. That will mean that campus then has close to 1,000 students located on it. So it becomes a very vibrant professional campus with schools of medicine, schools of pharmacy, mm -hmm. schools of nursing, as well as a school of veterinary medicine. So there's a lot of really good things about growing that campus. The other aspect is we have to hire faculty. And in terms of the model, we have to bring in 60 to 70 uh, faculty as well as another 30 or so staff. Uh, those faculty in general aren't in the region, so we have to recruit these professionals, PhDs, veterinarians into the region to be part of the faculty. So when we start to think about that, that brings in more students and more uh, professionals into the community, which has that flow-on effect. So when we've uh, commissioned an economic impact study, uh, once it's fully operational, the annual economic impact is estimated to be around $76 million per year. Wow. And that's not what we have to spend every year. That's that flow-on multiplier economic right. impact. So when we would look at that entire campus, that Texas Tech campus with the 1,000 students and all of the faculty and all of the activities there, that Texas Tech campus would then contribute an estimated quarter of a billion dollars a year of economic impact into the community and region. I'd like to talk a little bit about the need, just because I imagine most people, if, if they're like me, when they think of a veterinarian, it's because my dog is sick and I need to figure out what's wrong. And, you know, you drive around the city. In fact, we're recording this at Palace on 34th. There's a veterinarian in the shopping center. So it's, it's not hard for us to find a vet for our dogs or cats. But tell me about what I don't see because I'm not involved in the agricultural community or I'm not involved at a feedlot or a dairy. Tell me the role that those vets play in that sort of agricultural environment. Vets play a huge role in agricultural communities across Texas. Uh, typically, the skill set and the activities a vet does in an agricultural community are different than what they would do in a highly built urban environment. In an agricultural community, the, the vets are looked on as leaders of the community. They're expected to serve on the hospital board, on the school board, on livestock board. Uh, 
Um, the other aspect is that vet practices are often small family or individually partnership-owned businesses. And for instance, when we have a vet that can't find a partner to bring in, that limits that small business's ability to grow. And if the business can't grow, it doesn't contribute more to the tax base for the city, which affects the city. If there is excess demand for veterinary services than the vets can provide, then that affects the community's access to veterinary healthcare. And so they may have to travel, and we're seeing a lot of people having to travel. So there's a lot of impacts to communities of not being able to hire a vet. And there's another more salient aspect, is that smaller counties across Texas, so if we look at counties with fewer than 50,000 people, they are really short of veterinarians in general. And Which that, would be most of the counties outside yeah, that, Potter and Randall County in the that, Texas Panhandle. Well, that's three quarters of the counties in Texas okay. fit into that. And so the, the consequence of this is that it's not a new problem. This has been getting worse and worse and worse for decades. And because it's a chronic problem and a worsening problem, what that means when you can't recruit the next generation of veterinarian to your community and have them put down roots and live in that community is that there are fewer vets, obviously. Mm -hmm. You can't expand small businesses, we discussed, but it means the existing vet community is getting older. And so if we look at those three quarters of Texas counties, in excess of 40% of the vets are over the age of 60. Wow. So we would anticipate in the next decade, almost half of those vets are going to leave without an obvious recruitment pathway. The other aspect is that most vets' retirements are tied up in the value of their practice. So if you can't bring in an associate who becomes a partner and who buys the vet out, then the vets sit on real estate, and that's very hard for many of them to retire. So we're seeing a situation where we have fewer and fewer veterinary services, but an older and older generation of vets. Okay. Just some examples. We were down at Abilene speaking to a group of, of vets, and one of them said, I am 71, and I am the youngest vet in my county. Hmm. And he was to the county east of Abilene. And then I was speaking to uh, a local vet uh, and his brother. They ranch on New Mexico side of the border. And he said they use a father and son vet practice um, out of Clayton, New Mexico. The comment was the father's getting a little old. He's approaching 80 and the son's approaching 60. So hmm. we're seeing more and more situations like that. So in some aspect, this is a workforce shortage, clearly. But the aspect when we get down to the small businesses, those vet practices, this is a crisis for them that they can't grow and deliver services that they want. Or they're really struggling to work out how do they actually retire and enjoy the benefits of being able to retire if they can't hire on someone to buy out the practice. It's the, uh, it's the fall of, of 2018. Tell me what is the status of this plan for the, the vet school? We are moving forward uh, as fast as we can. Uh, our plan is to open the doors in the fall of 2021 for the first group of students. Okay. That sounds like three years away. But as I look at all the activities that need to happen between now and then, uh, that's a lot of activities. But it's reasonable. It's not overly aggressive. It's not overly conservative. Uh, we are in the deep part of the design stage for the building. Uh, that should be wrapped up in the next six to eight months or so. 
And then in the fall of 2019, we would begin construction. So shovels in the ground sometime in the fall of next year. The funding is in place at this point? Well, the funding has been guaranteed for construction by the city of Amarillo and all of the countless donors who have stepped up to provide funds for this. So funding for construction is done. Uh, we just have to work through the design to make sure that we program the building according to the curriculum. And I, I think at that stage, our biggest weakness at Texas Tech is we have no infrastructure to support veterinary medicine. But our biggest strength is we have no infrastructure right. to support veterinary medicine. So we're not encumbered by a 100-year-old model or a traditional approach to veterinary medicine. We can design a brand new curriculum, a transformative curriculum that meets the needs of Texas and meets our specific goal, and then design the facility to house that curriculum. So the curriculum informs then what that uh, facility looks like. And so we're moving very quickly along the path on facility design. We have a draft curriculum. We have our accrediting body coming out in the uh, spring of next year for a consultative visit. That's very important for us because uh, for accreditation, we have to present a reasonable and achievable plan right. to achieve certain standards. And in April, we want to demonstrate progress along that plan. So one of the, the interesting facets of how this process has gone is that, you know, around the time I began hearing about the Texas Tech Veterinary Center and the plan for that and the dreams of that, then the Texas A&M system began talking about one, you know, in Canyon in conjunction with WT. And, you know, as somebody who's on, on one side, I just wanted to to hear from you, is, is that something that is concerning on the Texas Tech side? I mean, are there thoughts that, you know, we definitely need one of these veterinary schools. Do we need two or can we support two? I mean, does is, is, is that provide a challenge, I guess, to this process for you? So when I started at West Texas A&M, the guy who hired me, the department chair, was Don Topliff. He gave me my start, uh, my professional start in my career. He then went on to become dean at WT. He's now provost at Angelo State University. But when I started in the early 2000s, Don was calling and calling and calling for the School of Veterinary Medicine or the College of Veterinary Medicine at Texas A&M to have more of a presence in the panhandle. And so what they're doing now, I think, is absolutely fantastic. Texas has grown. We need more veterinary workforce. We need a more diverse veterinary workforce. And we need more models of education. So I think what they're talking about in terms of putting a presence at WT, I think is fantastic. It's great for Texas A&M. It's great for WT. But it doesn't get around the fact that we've exceeded the capacity that any one institution can meet. We import three quarters of our workforce now every year. Uh, that, that is a tremendous shortfall in our needs where we have more Texans enrolling at out-of-state programs than we do have at in-state. We have an overwhelming uh, demand for education. So I, I think it's fantastic what they're doing and I applaud them for it. Um, this was what Don Topliff was calling for 20 years ago, but it doesn't change the fact that we've outgrown the capacity that any one institution can meet. And this is why we don't rely on one school of medicine right. in Texas. The Texas Tech Health Science Center is very different than the UT health science centers or schools of medicine that they have. 
And it takes a variety of different models to meet the needs of Texas. And I think this is an opportunity to address some of the structural challenges we've addressed. And quite frankly, Texas is really big enough for two vet schools. Okay. Uh, to make the argument that Texas isn't big enough, I think is very disingenuous to Texas. Right. If we were our own country, which I think in a lot of our minds we are sometimes, we would be by far the biggest developed country in the world with one vet school. With all of your involvement in the planning stages for this uh, and fundraising and, and every other aspect, I want you to look forward, you know, 10 years from now. What does it look like? What does Emerald look like? And what does the vet school look like, you know, as a result of that relationship? Fantastic. Well, before I go forward in time, I'd like to go back in okay, time. Okay, let's do that. So if we go back to the 60s, there was a group of uh, doctors who were fighting for a health science center, uh, a school of medicine to be located at Texas Tech. The argument was that the existing program, UT, who really owned public medical education at that time, said, no, we are the bastions of medical education in Texas. We can satisfy West Texas needs. And they fought and fought and fought this. But eventually there was a school of medicine established in uh, the early 70s at Texas Tech University. And it grew slowly, but now the Texas Tech Health Science Center graduates more health professionals than any other health science center in the state. Really? It has uh, nationally ranked programs uh, in schools of medicine, schools of nursing, in, in uh, physiotherapy, and other programs. And it is just a fantastic, transformative program that is achieving its mission to produce family medicine and primary care docs, particularly for rural parts of Texas. Okay. It is a standard bearer in the country for this. But those people in the 60s could not foresee all of the successes that their efforts would have. So I would ask today is to not just look 10 years, 20 years, but think about what it looks like in a generation. Time. There are going to be benefits to Amarillo, to the region, to the profession that we can't yet foresee. But we do know this, that Amarillo is going to be home to a world-class centre for veterinary education that attracts people from around the world to come here for research, for education, for all types of aspects. So in 10 years' time, we'll be a relatively new school. In 20 years' time, we'll be a mature school and growing. But in a generation's time, this will be truly a centre for veterinary education that Amarillo will be known for around the world. So you may or may not have heard that local car dealerships have been in the news lately and not exactly in a positive way. But I'm thrilled to be sponsored this week by Street Toyota, a longtime Amarillo dealer that has a consistent reputation for high ethical standards, for serving customers, and for putting this community first. If you're involved in any aspect of the nonprofit world, it won't be long before you encounter the generosity of Joe and Laura Street. And if you interact with their Street Toyota, it won't be long before you discover that this is just a different kind of dealership. They keep their promises, they listen to and respect their customers, they work hard, resolve any customer issues and they hold their employees to the highest possible professional standards. At Street Toyota, they do business with a servant's heart. And that's why I've heard countless stories of Street Toyota customers who 
buy a new or used vehicle there once, and then they decide they're never going anywhere else again. So check out Street Toyota's inventory at 45th and Sauncy, or visit streettoyota.com. Okay, I'm back with Guy Lonregan, who's uh, involved in bringing the vet school to Amarillo. Guy, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in whatever degree of detail you want to. Uh, so here's the first one. Besides Texas Tech University, uh, in your opinion, what's the biggest difference between Lubbock and Amarillo? I-40. And I don't mention that flippantly. I think uh, I-40 is obviously a different, but it's an extraordinarily highly trafficked road. And the number of people that stay here and eat here, of people who are passing through, contributes a huge amount of tax base to the local economy. And that has enabled Amarillo to be innovative and forward-thinking in a way that Lubbock hasn't had the opportunity. Lubbock has the loop, which is something Amarillo's always wanted to have, but it doesn't have that constant flow of, of people just passing through the city on their way to somewhere else like Amarillo does. Exactly. I think that's, that's right. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Say you're talking about the vet school or you're talking to someone you know, back home in Australia. How do you describe this area? Well, when I lived here for a long time, my mother-in-law still lives in Canyon and would come back uh, every other week, it seems like. I get to see what Amarillo is doing, and I would describe it as a growing, vibrant, innovative city where cowboy meets city. Okay, or cowboy meets city. That's cowboy. not something a guest has said before, but I like that. What does this area have too much of? Traffic construction on I-40. I believe most locals would agree with that, and beyond I-40. Yes. Tell me, tell me about Lubbock. Does it have the, the constant construction that Amarillo has right now? It, it does. So one of the things that uh, people will notice when they, two things that people will notice when they go to Lubbock from Amarillo or vice versa, is that we don't have the billboards that I-40 has. And we don't quite have the traffic. So for whatever reason, uh, while we don't have I-40 running through it with all the benefits that brings, uh, the, the planners of Lubbock have developed a, a way that moves traffic very efficiently. And, and I think that is probably a two difference that people will notice. All right. What does this area not have enough of besides veterinarians? Well, I, I think more broadly we can ask the question, what about water? Hmm. I think uh, long-term sustainability is going to require innovation. And Amarillo is a great spot for innovating solutions to challenges. I think we've got to look at how we continue on with a vibrant urban, industrial, and agricultural communities facing the fact that we don't produce enough water uh, long term. So we can do it. It's just something that we have to do as a community, and I think Amarillo is a great spot to do it. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? Oh, it would have to be before I left West Texas A&M and went to Texas Tech. So that would be, uh, I hate to say it, last decade. Was, was that something that was on your radar coming to the United States or coming to this area? Were you aware of, of that art installation prior to it? It was not coming to the U.S. So when okay. we think of Texas, we, the first thing that jumps to mind probably isn't Cadillac Ranch. But when I moved to WT, there's a series of things you have to do and one of them is go to the Cadillac Ranch. So, yeah, I've been there. It was on the list. Right. And then you take guests. So you get family or friends coming in from out of town, and it's just the thing you do. All right. So that's the west side of I-40. The east side is the Big Texan. When was the last time you ate at the Big Texan? I would have to say 
the same answer before I moved to Texas Tech, but I've taken my parents, I've taken relatives, I've taken friends, uh, because it is part of that experience uh, that you take friends and guests and family when they come to visit. What's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? Oh, that's a really good question, and I'm going to have to provide some context to my answer in that it's uh, coming up lunchtime or a little bit into lunchtime, and I skip breakfast. So uh, my mind is where my stomach is at the moment. Uh, it's hard for us, my wife and I, my wife's from El Paso, it's hard for us to go past La Campana, okay. some of the best Mexican food we've ever eaten. Uh, it's always fantastic. But then we used to really enjoy... Uh, date night at BL Bistro. Mm -hmm. I understand that's been renamed as yeah. Gem, but uh, that restaurant is a fantastic place. Um, but also more recently, the Six Car Pub and Brewery is just incredible. I, I went to it recently and it's just fantastic. Okay. What's your go-to Amarillo coffee shop? I know your experience in Canyon, you know, probably was tied to Palace, you know, at, at that point was, was just starting in, uh, during that time. Is that correct? Uh, it was a little bit after my time. Okay, so it was even after you left yeah. then. Uh, but the best coffee on the planet is at Palace Coffee. I, I have the pleasure to travel quite a bit and go to major cities uh, around the world. And you think of homes of coffee of Italy and France and others. Uh, I was visiting with a, a friend of mine, a colleague, the researcher at Texas A&M that I do a lot of work with, and I said, where do you reckon the best coffee you've ever had in the world is and i was going to say palace coffee and he beat me to it and said palace coffee really? so uh, it is fantastic is there a comparable coffee shop or coffee culture in lubbock it, it is there are some so there's jb uh, coffee which is very good uh, there's a new coffee place uh, downtown uh, in the same building where the west table restaurant is mm -hmm. which is very good as well. So it, and there's Yellow Stripe, I believe it's called, uh, coffee. So there, there, there is, but we haven't got a Palace Coffee yet. Okay. Well, that concludes the eight questions, Guy. I like to end my, my podcast by asking the guests to endorse something related to this area. Uh, so what's something that you would want listeners to be aware of or to experience? Well, I, I think... I might go a little bit more esoteric here, if I may. Go for it. It sort of comes back to who we are, what we are, where we are. You know, Amarillo is a vibrant city. It's a growing city, but it's also a city that leads. And it's a city that is successful because it has big, bold ideas that um, it bets on and oftentimes it wins on. Hmm. Take, for example, just think of Bell Helicopter. That's a big idea to get them here and help them expand and grow and contribute to the local economy. So if anything I could endorse, it's that Amarillo viewpoint, that it Amarillo embraces ideas that are bigger than today. So it's very easy to get caught into what is today's problem. And I'm going to focus on that and not think about the future or think that idea is too big for Amarillo. And I would say you know, don't underestimate Amarillo. It's city leaders, it's economic development corporation, it's citizens, Amarilloans, have vision that is bigger than they are today. Okay. And quite often they work out how to implement it. And so we see other cities in the region, so I think Midland and Abilene and Lubbock, really looking to Amarillo to see how they were successful. So Amarillo really is a leader on having those 
bigger visions, those bold, those broad visions, and then working out ways to make them successful. So I, I would encourage, I certainly endorse that, but I would encourage others to get behind it and, and think, how do I get behind this big vision? Because Amarillo is going places. It is going to keep growing and it's going to grow well uh, and how we get behind it make, is going to really determine that success. Guy Lonerigan, thank you for being on the Hey Amarillo podcast. I appreciate it. Well, it's fantastic to be here. Thank you, Jason. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Guy Lonerigan for sitting down for this interview, which was conducted in the conference room at Amarillo National Bank's Summit location, which they share with Palace Coffee. So thanks to A&B, thanks to Palace for hosting us. You can learn more about this podcast at heyamarillo.com. Dig into the archives, find an episode you haven't listened to before. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at heyamarillo or on Instagram at Podcast. And if you like the show, leave a review somewhere on Facebook, on iTunes, wherever you listen. That helps other people find the show. If you appreciate this podcast, you can support it by becoming part of my Patreon community at patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Become one of those supporters and you'll have access to exclusive podcast content that you can't get in this feed. Executive producers of Hey Amarillo include Corey Burns, Katie Linger, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Wilson Lemieux. Thanks to my sponsors, thanks to my supporters, and thank you so much for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.